We are continuing through our journey through First and Second Thessalonians, uh, uh, with the principle being that we are to live in the light of His return, and we are going to uh, to get to some of that aspect today. But I want to begin uh, with a, 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 pa- a parable that relates very much to the topic at hand uh, and the idea of living in the light of His return. And this is the parable of the ten manas, and it uh, comes to us from Luke chapter nineteen. This is after Zacchaeus was converted. Jesus is leaving Jericho, heading to Jerusalem. Listen carefully uh, as Luke chronicles the words of Jesus Christ. And while they were listening to these things, he went to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And he said, therefore, a certain nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas, or minas, and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And it came about that when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that those slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him in order they might know what business they had done. And they first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in the very little thing, being authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him, You are to be over five cities. And another came, saying, Master, behold, your mina, which I kept away in a handkerchief. It is uh, because I was afraid of you because you're an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down. You reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you not know that I'm an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put the money in a bank and having come, I would have collected it with interest. And he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. Of course, this, this particular parable, there's probably some uh, multiple applications to it. But the overall theme is basically that uh, uh, what did the servants do while the master was away? What did the servants do while the master was away? And that's an important question for us as we go through our journey, First Thessalonians, because we don't know when the master is coming back. It could be today. It could be before, our, before we have our lunch today. It could be 6,000 years from now. We don't know. C.S. Lewis said this, precisely because we cannot predict the moment, we should be ready at all moments. So what we're ha- dealing with here is the Thessalonian church, uh, it really is in so many ways a model congregation, as we've been speaking about for these last several months here. It, uh, as Paul says in, first, uh, in chapter 1, verse 7, uh, that they were examples to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia, or in Greece. And yet, some of them with, uh, took Paul's teaching on the return of Christ to an extreme. And they basically, as one commentator says, their zealous preoccupation with Jesus coming led to the mistaken notion that temporal responsibilities no longer mattered in light of his return. Even to the point that some of them were forsaking their normal duties and their normal jobs and just sitting around waiting for the return of Christ. They are probably, you've heard this expression before, which certainly would apply to these Thessalonians. They were so heavenly minded, they were of no earthly good. 
So Paul is basically uh, going to come to this principle now of how do you spend your time waiting for the Lord? He's going to emphasize brotherly love. Last week, you'll recall that he looked at uh, the, 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 the need for us to be sanctified by being sexually, uh, uh, by not uh, having sexual immorality to be named amongst us. And now the second part of that is that we learn not lust, but love and to love one another within the church and to stop daydreaming about glory and get on with the business at hand. So my hope today, as we look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12, that you're going to be able to embrace the aspects of a simple Christian life, given the, uh, in, in living in the light of his return. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do turn to you in faith. We pray, God, that we would be uh, as those faithful uh, uh, stewards, those faithful slaves, God, who took everything that you've given us, all the gifts, all of the property, all of the relationships, and invested it wisely in anticipation of your coming back. There's not a one of us here that does not want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And yet, Lord, we are a very distracted people. And we are often not practicing the love that we should in Scripture. So I pray, God, that you would just teach us the principle here, the four aspects of the simple Christian life, and help them to put them into place and enjoy the peace that we should have, knowing that you are overall, that you will come back, and you will, you will reward us for what we've done in this life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Again, turn to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to look at ch uh, chapter 4, verses 9 through 12 this morning. Let me read that to you in its entirety. God says, Paul writes, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we have commanded you so that you may behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. As we look at this text, we're going to look at four different components here uh, uh, that, are, that relate to the simple Christian life. And you might be uh, uh, benefited by looking at your home group helps insert. We're going to see the love of others in verses 9 through 10. Lead a quiet life in verse 11a. Leave others alone in verse 11b. And labor hard in verse 11, 3, I mean, 11c through verse 12. So first of all, we're, going to, we're to love Others Again, uh, the, the principle here is we're moving from doctrine at the first part of the letter to duty, uh, we're from the, uh, the uh, indicatives uh, to the imperatives here. So Paul is now just kind of throwing out these various commands here with this big principle here the, of, of love here uh, and because the Lord is coming back. And, and if, if there's a, a command that is greater than all the other commandments, indeed the sum of all the commandment is that we're to love God and to love others. John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, his return, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. If, if Jesus, if we got a five-minute warning that Jesus was going to come back right now, five minutes from now, what, would, what emotionally would you be going through? Would you have regrets? What are those regrets? 
What are those things that you just seem to have not been able to repent of? Or what are the regrets in regards to your relationship with others? Think about that because it's actually a possibility. He could come back within five minutes. So test yourself a little bit. What goes through my mind when I think about the, the return of Jesus Christ? And repent if, it's a, if, it's a, if you're insecure or shamed by that thought. Think about that. But the point is, is we need, we need to be able to demonstrate our love for God for, by having love for others. Michael Horton in his book, Ordinary, emphasized the importance of living the simple Christian life, which is characterized by good works. Uh, quoting both Luther and Calvin, he remarks that Luther said here in typical Luther fashion, God does not need your good works, your neighbor does. You know, there's some truth to that, right? You, you don't improve God in any way with your good works, but your neighbor has improved greatly. Calvin, in a more eloquent way, uh, talks something about uh, our, our, uh, our need for good works and, uh, and the emphasis on, on giving those to our neighbors. Calvin says uh, this, Since our good deeds cannot reach God anyway, he gives us instead other believers unto whom we can do good deeds. The one who does, who wants to love God, can do so by loving the believers. And this is important. Don't go around talking about how much you love Christ when you show no love to others, especially to other Christians here. And he says now here to the love of the brethren, that idea of uh, loving the brethren is the, the word Philadelphia. It used to be just blood relatives, but it got to be extended to the church of Jesus Christ because we're adopted into the same uh, family. But it's this true biblical love. It just recurs. This theme recurs throughout the New Testament. And, and sometimes I even as I go through the letters of Paul, you know, we just finished first uh, second Corinthians and we go right into Thessalonians. And I was mentioning may, maybe you ought to break it up with different authors after that because this reoccurring theme of love keeps coming but can we hear too many sermons on love <laughs> it's an emphasis that we that we're cold to so often and we have to be constantly reminded here uh, that it is our goal here to be to live sacrificially for the sake of others here um, and and again he's coming to a contrast here we have just talked last week about sexual immorality and in a sense he's saying don't lust but do love Lust is a, a dark, dark counterfeit made by the evil one in order to confuse people to what the true nature of love. And one of the ways he's doing that in our current culture, and one reason why I think our culture is so unloving to a certain degree, is because of the, the, the advent and the, the proliferation of pornography. Uh, there, and there's a group that's uh, fighting pornography right now and trying to help you fight pornography. It's called Fight the New Drug. And it talks about the effect of this uh, immorality on love. Because we think about, well, pornography is bad. It's lust. Uh, it's, it's something that could be habit-forming. Uh, it, it's a distraction and everything else. But it actually, actually, if you pursue lust like that, it will actually make you less loving. Now, they would not want you to think that. They would want to think, you to think that you would become a better lover as a result of viewing this. But according to this new drug group, porn uh, consumers tend to experience more negative communication with their partners, feel less dedicated to their relationships, have a more difficult time making adjustments in their relationships, are less sexually satisfied, and commit more infidelity. Research also shows that porn consumers tend to be less committed to their partners, less satisfied in their relationships, and more accepting of cheating. There is a self-imposed misery that comes taking those immoral shortcuts. 
And what ends up happening is there's less of us to actually show love because we have been consumed uh, with illicit ways to express those affections. He goes on, he affirms them. You yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And this comes, this is, goes back 600 years to the, to the new covenant, right? Jeremiah 31, God says this, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they will be my people. Those of you who are born again, you know this to be true. You have a love for God which you didn't have before. You have a desire to please God which you did not have before because he's written it on our heart. Romans 5, 5 says this, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. John Calvin says, Paul means this, the love was engraven upon our hearts so that there is no need of letters to be written, but that our hearts were framed for love. He, he literally, when we're born again, he, he creates in us a new heart that is capable of a love we never had before. It's just, it's absolutely remarkable. And that's why love ought to be the characteristic of a church. We are to, as he says here, love one another. Now, the word love there is our favorite word, agape, or the verb from agapeo. It's the purest, noblest form of love. It's, a, it's volitionally driven. It's not motivated by superficial appearance, emotional attraction, or sentimental relationship. This is something that's really hard for us. Because we've gotten to this point where I will love when I feel like loving. Agape has nothing to do with feelings. Indeed, the kind of love that Jesus commands for us to have is to love the people that we don't feel like loving. Indeed, even loving perhaps our enemies. It's a decision. It's a verb. It's an action. It's something that we do with service. We do with our prayers. We do with encouraging words, whatever it might be. If you keep waiting to love somebody, you may be waiting around for a long time. And that's a person that some people are, tend to be more loving than others. But we, this, is, this is a command for all of us. No matter how introverted or extroverted you are, no matter what your Enneagram is, <laughs> you're to be a loving person. It's a command here to love one another. And he says that he gives them again, he, he, he gives them some, uh, some affirmation. You do practice it toward all the believers who are in Macedonia. They're already characterized by this kind of love here. They are a, a loving church here. Uh, and they're known for that. You know, I tell you, uh, I have this fantasy uh, that this is going to happen to one of you one day. That you're, you're in Publix, okay? And you're, you're like buying ham and you're buying uh, bunches of food and someone looks to you and says, my goodness, you know, what are you planning here? And you say to them, I'm helping you here. You say to them, well, we're going to have a big church fellowship meal. And then they say to you, oh, what church do you go to? And you say to them, well, I go to Christ Reformed Church. That's the one across from Krispy Kreme. And, uh, and they say to you, oh, you go to the loving church. Whew. Jesus, take me home. We have arrived, right? You go to the loving church. Wow. Well, that's what the Thessalonians were. They were that loving, loving church here. And, it's in, and, and, and I want to look at the, the negative side of this. Why don't we love the way we should? Why, what is it that, 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 uh, that creates in us a, a, a desire to protect ourselves even from, from other people? I'm just going to throw out some quick, I think I've got 17 of them. Some of them are redundant. But uh, 17 love blockers. Okay, this will be my next book. 17 love blockers. First of all, legalism. Legalism. Because, it, and there are people, Christians that are like this. Uh, 
people don't measure up to your standard and what then and then they don't behave the way they should be you tend to look down on others who don't have your standard. Oh, they do certain things that you don't approve of. Or, or, or they're not really loving at all. I'm, I'm the loving. You, you become the standard for behavior and you judge everybody else based on your, your pride, your self-righteousness, that sort of thing. So you end up being very lonely. And you're not a lick of good to the church, by the way. Selfishness, of course. Apathy is the opposite of love. You just don't care about other people. Lust. Paul draws this uh, contrast from immorality to now this the, the, in the previous passage to this passage now, as I mentioned earlier. Perfectionism. You're hard on yourself, so you're hard on others too. You're, you're always nitpicking your own yourself. You're always living under this, this shame and this, uh, this, uh, this self-doubt and everything, so you portray that onto others. Bitterness. Bitterness wants vengeance, not love. A lot of you have been hurt in the past, and, and you're gonna, you, that creates this shell uh, and, uh, and, and protection, self-righteousness or religious piety. You feel superior, as I mentioned before. But the, the good example of this would be like Jonah that didn't want to go meet the Ninevites and the Pharisees. Right? They were the Pharisees. Uh, you would want a Pharisee to be a babysitter. They were upstanding citizens, but they scorned everybody else who wasn't like them. They were self-righteous. Fear. You're afraid to get too close because we have all been hurt. And let me tell you one thing, the, 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 the folks, I didn't tell them this before they joined, but they're going to get hurt by people in this church. It's just the nature of, of things. It's the nature of human relationships. What's the church about? We've got human relationships, right? We also, of course, have a divine relationship which helps all that. But there's a fear here. This is why people don't join a church. They're afraid to make the commitment. This is why people, was it 50% of all married families now, now couples cohabitate before they get married because of fear? Because they've been hurt. They've seen train wreck relationships in their lives. And they're not going to do that. They're going to they're shack up for a few years before they determine what's, what's there. Uh, fear is a sin. I, anything that you do that has an element of fear other than the fear and respect for the Lord is going to end up being a disaster. Competition. We see others as rivals, not as objects of our love. Again, you've got to be careful. When you walk in church, are you, are you like checking everybody else? You know, oh, oh they got a better dress than I have on. Oh, that guy's got, man, where did he get gray seersucker? You know, which I asked Chad Brendel every time he wears his gray seersucker. He's like, wow, you know. But he's not a rival. I'm not in competition. Uh, Self-reliance, uh, uh, you don't need anybody. You know, you've been hardened. You're going to be, you know, you're, you're going to be an island. You don't need anyone. Racism, racism, uh, it tends to be practiced by people who are, insecure so they have to feel better about themselves by looking down on some other person or some other group of people right or overzealous nationalism you know nationalism is the thing that drives this thing so we we're going to look down on or dislike anybody who doesn't have our same political view love of convenience and government uh, and, uh, and comfort love is just a hassle <laughs> it's just it takes effort why bother with it Indifference, who cares? Sloth, again, love is service and service is work, so I don't want to work. Jealousy, uh, comparisons uh, breed insecurity. They breed insecurity. And then, uh, to a certain degree, self-loathing. Uh, if, 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 if you are humble, that's a good thing. But some people who are so consumed with self-loathing, first of all, they're consumed with themselves and they're probably wallowing in self-pity. Uh, you're going you're gonna, to, if you hate yourself, the standard is love your neighbor as yourself. If you hate yourself, you're likely to, to hate your neighbor or at least not love them as well. 
And then probably the, uh, kind of in a sense a summary of all these, thinking little of God's love on the cross. Rick Phillips says this, if we think little of the cross of Christ, we are likely to feel little love from God and have little love for him or for others. If you re- routinely practice some of those love killers, you may not be a Christian. If you routinely practice some of those love printers, you may be a Christian, but you don't really understand the gossip. When you think about the terror, the horror, the pain, the loneliness, the separation, the desperation of the death of Jesus Christ. When you think about that, and that's what it took for you to be forgiven. How could we not embrace others with love? You know, we, we think about the cross Christ. We never saw it. We certainly read about it. We believe it. Uh, but even if we had experienced something like that, our memory would fade other t- uh, over time. God's memory never fades. He ne- it never fades. He remembers absolutely every detail of having to send his son to die for us. So when we're not showing the kind of love that we should have for others, we basically don't understand the gospel. We don't understand how much he has shown to us in terms of love. But when we grace that, it frees us up to be able to show others love. First John 4 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not love God, for God is love. Agape love is the barometer of our Christian walk, of our Christian relationship. But he, he, he recognizes they have love, but then he says, hey, I want to, to excel still more. There's our word, excel again, superabound, still, still more. This is always an urging of the apostles. You never give up. You never decide, well, yep, I've got the love thing down. Let's move on to the next category. We're always working to improve those areas. Peter says this in 1 Peter uh, 1, Since you have the obedience and the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart fervently love one another. This is not a passive, uh, a, a passive sport here. You, uh, that, that idea literally means to stretch out to the limits of love for one another. Okay? Real love takes real effort here. And sometimes we just don't even bother to return a text. You are to stretch out to the limits of loving one another. Commentator says this, part of what makes Christianity so exciting is our awareness that there is always so much more of God's glory to which we can find delight. There is more of us to know the grace, goodness, and majesty of God. It's actually a kindness of God that we never do arrive in our sanctification. Uh, that, that, that we never can say, yeah, okay, I got that, I got that fruit of the Spirit down. I got to work on these two right here. Uh, because it makes life more exciting. We're always striving forward. Any of you have been on a sports team, you know one of the worst places you could be is number one, right? Because it's really hard to maintain number one. It's, it's, it's easier to move. Have you ever been on a diet? It's, it's, it's easier to lose weight than it is to, make, be, to maintain weight. Think about it. What if Wile E. Coyote ever caught the roadrunner? Do you ever think about that? What if he ever caught the roadrunner? His life would have no meaning, you know? He'd be spending the rest of his days in counseling. I mean, what do I do, you know? You know, I've caught him. Well, it's it's that way with sanctification. We get discouraged sometimes, but it really does kind of make the story exciting. We're on this journey, and it will end when when he comes back. Jude 21 says, Keep yourself in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Christ 
uh, to eternal life. So there's a waiting here. And love is basically holding a packed bag looking to his return. Then we see here, leading a quiet life. The rest of these points are shorter than that one. He says here, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Now, that is counter-American, isn't it? But we are to lead a quiet life here. And, and, and that idea of quietness, part of that is a settledness, a peace that comes with being a Christian. Uh, cease striving and know that I am God. 1 Corinthians 14 says uh, this, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. But let all things be done properly and in an orderly manner. We, he, Paul closes this letter, 1 Thessalonians 5, with a benediction. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. The, this idea here, though, is, is kind of a, it, it's, uh, it's con, kind of a contrary uh, verbs here. It is make yourself, um, make it your ambition here to lead a quiet life. That idea of make your ambition is to zealously strive eagerly, even to consider it as an honor to be able to achieve this. And yet to lead a quiet life means to be silent. You could translate this, strive hard to live quiet. Now, None of us, when we were 16 years old, and you're fantasizing about what you're going to do for the rest of your life, and you're thinking, I'm going to be a sports star, I'm going to be a war hero, I'm going to be a great politician, uh, I'm going to be, you know, you just fill in the blank. Whatever your dream was, whatever your dream was, none of you were sitting there thinking, I am going to strive to have a quiet life. Now, you old folks are thinking that all the time right now, right? I want a quiet life, you know? But that really is an... Now, be careful here. Don't take this as God saying don't have ambition. But one reason why you're so discontent, if you have fantasized about what your life should be like, and your dreams are not God's dreams... And you have decided, I am not going to be content until I can be X, Y, Z, or whatever it might be. And that was never God's intention. God's intention is to grow you up. One way God grows you up is by shattering your dreams to make you dependent on Him, not that you're going to be a rock star instead. So there is this point. You do need to be ambitious for the things of God and everything, but you need to be really flexible. And your goal is to live, in a sense, in peace and quiet, to strive hard for the quiet life here. Because that's where you find God. God is not in the rush. He is not in the rush. Tuesday night, we're going to be going through Atlanta. You know, there's just this recent um, survey that we reached the 8 billion mark in terms of population on planet Earth. Y'all read that? Every one of them will be in Atlanta on Tuesday night. And, uh, and, and, and that just, you know, that kind of mob traffic just, just got, God's in our car, but I don't, you know, he's in the rest of the cars, you know, that's what, but we, tr we try to surround ourselves like that because we think that's what Americans are supposed to live like. That's not really what we're supposed to live like. I love this example. <clears throat> Remember Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal and then he, then he got, as so often he was on the mountaintop that worked real well. And then he got scared and ran. Uh, and, uh, uh, he's running, he's at a ca cave here, and pick it up with verse uh, uh, 11, 13 of 1 Kings 19. <clears throat> so he said, go and stand by the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. 
And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the uh, earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. And it came about when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. One reason why we don't hear God very often is we've surrounded ourselves with activity and noise because we're afraid to hear God. We're afraid to hear God. And we're so consumed with our own interests, we're not looking out for the interests of others. James says this, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until... Here we go again. Until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets to the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, for you yourselves may not be, uh, may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. The next one is we're supposed to leave others alone. We're to, to attend to our own business. In other words, mind your own business, in a sense, is what uh, this is part of. Uh, and, and that does, again, to be a family, to be part of a church, means we are in other people's lives, but we're not busybodies about it. This was a real danger that Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 about, about widows, young widows, uh, and he wanted them to get married because the alternative was idleness, and, and idleness is very dangerous for any of us. And he says here, sometimes when they're that way, they, they learn to be idle. They go about from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busy, busybodies talking about things not proper even to mention. And, uh, and what ha was happening is the, in the Thessalonian church, people had kind of given up their jobs and then they're kind of getting into everybody else's business. We've had times, Mrs. Dunlap can tell you, we've had times in the past where people would call the church just to get the lowdown on people that are members of the church. They were just busybodies. They just they 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 hadn't maybe come in a couple of weeks and they want to find out what's going on, but not in a good way. Not necessarily in a good way. But this is this kind of goes with what Paul says, and he kind of expands this idea later on in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3, uh, when he says this: When we were with you, we used to give you this order: if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are leading undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, such a person we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Here's the danger. And, I, and I'm so grateful for that, that verse. Here's the danger. We are commanded so much to show Christian love, but there is a point in time when that kind of love can be dangerous. And people can take advantage of it, and they become worse as a result of it. It's it's the it's 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 the wrong uh, uh, the wrong result for showing uh, Christian love here. Uh, and uh, the the big issue here is, is is someone can they work, or will they not work? Don't you deal with this every time a homeless person comes up and asks you for money? We struggle, right? Because Christian love says we care for others, that God has a special love for the poor. On the other hand, you know you give him five bucks and he's going to go right to the red dot store or to the drug dealer or whatever it might be. And he appears to be healthy, be, be able to work, but he appears to... But, it's, you know, we have to go through all these emotions. It happens here when people stop by the church. We get, what we do is we support ministries who are skilled and trained on how to take care of people like that. I got to the point in Columbia, I, had to, I, I did a handout. We actually have handouts out here for places where you can get help. But I did a handout because this was a real problem in our church. We were downtown church, and, and literally people would be lining up the, like at the, in the parking lot, in the front door, to ask our people for money. And you had a bunch of well-meaning Christians who were sensitive to anything. 
And I, I stood up in a pulpit one day, we gave all this out, and I said, you cannot starve to death in Columbia, South Carolina. You cannot freeze to death in Columbia, South Carolina. You cannot go without a bed in Columbia, South Carolina. And I held up a map, and there was like 10 places within a half a mile of our church that would provide all the basic necessities and counseling and hopefully have expectations for life change. And Paul is saying, this is, the problem is this was happening within the church. People are, people are they're basically just abusing other people uh, and, they're, and they're, they're taking advantage of Christian love. Y'all, this has happened to every one of us before, right? And we had this precious young couple. They were kind of this, one of these fun granola couples, you know. And um, they, they were having a Bible study. They moved into Olympia Village, which was, had been really run down part of Columbia. It was coming back up. It was close to the University of South Carolina. Some students lived there. And they wanted to have a Bible study, and they had food for the Bible study, and they invited the neighbors. And they had several neighbors that would come on Tuesday and just eat all the food and then leave. And this was the sweetest couple. And they were like, what do we do? And I said, you don't have them back. They're not there for the word. They're, they're, they're abusing your love. They're abusing your hospitality. Is it okay to happen once? Yeah. But you're basically, God did not call you to be a doormat in this kind of situation here. But there's a balance there, right? There's a balance there. And it's kind of hard for us to determine that. Well, this is a, a real issue here uh, in the church here. So, uh, so I'll pick up with this idea of hard labor here. We're to labor, labor hard and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you may behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. Again, this helps having a little bit of a context, though it's still a situation in America as well, uh, to understand what the Greeks were, their mindset was. The Greeks in general despised labor. They despised the idea of working with your hands. Uh, uh, any, any Greek worth of salt would have a slave to do that kind of thing, or they would hire somebody to do that kind of thing. Uh, there was, a, there was a, an intellectual snobbery. I mean, this is, this is, uh, this is the place that, that had Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. You know, we, we labor with our minds. We don't labor with our hands. So what happened is people got converted. Slaves became adopted children of God, and laborers became adopted children of God. They started taking on this mindset too. Hey, you know what? Uh, Jesus is coming back. We're now Christians. We don't want to work anymore. Instead, we want to go hang out in your house and eat your, your food. This is what was happening here. Uh, and, it's, and, and this stuff still happens today, right? That's still our mentality. We just had a, some plumbing work done in our house. Our plumber makes $130 an hour. And he, earned, and he I don't begrudge him a cent. <laughs> that man was on our roof plunging uh, Greece from 1969 out of our pipes, right? Maybe didn't need to illustrate it that, that graphically. I don't begrudge them a bit, you know. But that we do have this snobbery, right? We have this kind of snobbery about uh, labor. The Greeks were going through the same thing. But the, the, the principle here is you, you, you work hard. You don't take advantage of other people. Uh, we had very few trick-or-treaters this year, and I had a big old honking bag of candy, which uh, I gave away because I didn't trust myself with it. Uh, but we only had like three trick-or-treaters that came by this year. But I remember last year, we had this little girl who came by, and, she, and this was early in the night. She opened up her bag, and it was like that full of candy. And I, and, and, but the others just had a few little, and I said, where did you get all the candy? And she said, oh, she said, some of the houses, the people aren't home, so they leave a big bucket of candy out on the front steps. So I went to a couple of houses and just dumped the whole thing into my bag. 
And her mother was right behind her and said, yeah, yeah, isn't that great? Ha! Huh. That's theft. That's, that's devil night theft. I don't know how where that goes, but, uh, but it's just, I mean, that's just, but that's people's mentality. And that was actually happening in the church here. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. In a sense, your motivation is not just your own material comfort. Some of that's okay. But it's what can I give to somebody else? What can I give to somebody else? Stott reminds us that the idle are unwilling, not unable to work. And that's where we have to make it... uh, 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 discernment on, on who actually needs our help and that sort of thing. So one of the keys here is to stop comparing ourselves. God has a different calling, a different dream for everybody else. You be content with what God has called you to do. Do you realize how much better you would feel about yourself and life in general and how much more content would you be if you would just rest in what God has called you to do instead of comparing yourselves to others? I think of all, all the, thing, uh, the, the, the abuse so many of your mo- you moms have uh, had to put up with in so many ways. I remember back in the early days, we, were, we wanted Nancy to stay at home. We ended up homeschooling our children. And Nancy would go to uh, the, the park, and she would be sitting there with all of the, uh, the maids and all of the caregivers in the park. You know, there were hardly any other maids because, you know, uh, people would say, to her, why would you waste your life by raising your children? Well, William Ross Wallace wrote a poem that reflects uh, just how important that role is, even though the culture in general may not seem, think so. Woman, how divine your mission here upon your natal, our natal sod. Keep, oh, keep the young heart open always to the breath of God. All true, true trophies of the ages are from mother loved imperiled. For the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Blessings on the hand of women, fathers, sons, and daughters cry. And the sacred song is mingled with the worship in the sky. Mingles where no tempest darkens, rainbows evermore are hurled. For the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Praise God, some of you are content just to be mamas. To be a mama. And you're not beating yourself up because you didn't own the accounting firm or whatever it might be. And the goal here is, again, that we behave properly towards uh, outsiders. Uh, Please, if you're going to do a bad job, don't put a fish on the back of your car. (laughs) I hired a contractor that had a fish on his truck and had a fish on his business card. It It took four months to finish my fence. The same contractor got a job at a church, uh, putting down a floor like this one, got halfway through and just never showed up again. And just please, if you're going to be bad at what you do, don't put a fish because we are to behave properly towards uh, outsiders. And what are we to do also? We're to serve him. I love this text and it's convicting in so many ways because we're so poor at it. And yet it's also a uh, Jesus says it in order to know that you're going to get a reward for what you do. But when the Son of Man comes, Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his all his glory, isn't it amazing how many times the return of Christ is mentioned in Scripture? And all the angels with him, then he will sit on the glorious throne. And all the nations will gather before him, and he will separate one from another as the sheep separates the, uh, the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those 
on his right. Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you for the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked, you clothed me and was sick and you visited me. And I was in prison and you came to me. This is so keeping with Jesus' commandment, John chapter 13. A new commandment I give you that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciple, that you have love for one another. And you know, it's interesting. If you look at church history, when the church was really loving one another, when they were sharing everything together, when they were constantly uh, participating in fellowship, when they were learning and they were teaching everything, it, it changed the world. It absolutely changed the world. The, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ went from Jerusalem to, to England, to uh, Libya, to the uh, coast of India within that first time, within the, 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 the lifetime of the apostle John. Uh, <clears throat> Tertullian once reported that the Romans would say of Christians, see how they love one another. Justin Martyr explained Christian love this way. We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and, and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of, the, of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. One reason why Paul calls us to have kind of a simple Christian life here is because if you're devoted yourself to that... You are not distracted from being devoted to others and to help meet other people's needs, other people's needs. Again, Michael Horton reminds us the gospel produces peace and empowers us to live by faith. We are no longer anxious, but secure and invigorated because we are crucified and risen with Christ. We are no longer trying to live up to the starring role that we've given ourselves, but are written into the story of Christ. We have nothing to prove, just a lot of work to do. God, good works are no longer seen as a condition of our union with Christ, but as its fruit. We are no longer slaves, but the children of God, co-heirs with Christ, our elder brother. So let us endeavor to live the simple Christian life. And according to the words of Revelation 22, 20, that say this as well. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord, quickly. Father, I pray that you would help us to be found waiting for you when you return. And pray, God, that whatever we do would make a lasting impression for those others who would come after us if you don't return. I pray, God, that you would, especially in this area of love, but also in these other areas, that you would convict us when we are failing. And, uh, and show us and give us opportunities to show this kind of love this week. Whatever the sacrifice is, it is nothing compared to the blessing of doing your will. I pray that we would see that and you would demonstrate that to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.